All right, so um, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible in your hands, you're going to need one for our um, adventures in the Word today. So um, uh, put a paw in the end, if that, in the air, if that's you, um, and someone will bring one uh, out from the back. So um, here they come. Okay, so this gentleman here, is, if you want to make eye contact with him, you'll find a Bible coming to you. Great, okay. Um, so it's really exciting um, to be um, beginning, uh, for me, this King series this morning. Um, Rod and I are going to be marching through um, one and two Kings together over the next several weeks, and that's kind of cool. We've been looking forward to doing something like that for a long time, because we've been kind of Genesis, Acts, Genesis, Acts, and you're never quite sure which one you're in. So now you know where you are. <laughs> We're in one Kings, two Kings for a little while. Um, we're not going to be preaching our way through every verse of these books, um, but what we want to do instead is just give you a bit of a taste for it. Um, and there are a number of different reasons why, I guess, uh, these books have come to our attention and why we want to um, lead us through it as a church. For me, I guess, it's just particularly that the Old Testament history books represent such a big part of this great book, the Bible, that God has given us to encourage us and, and uh, feed us. Um, so many of the riches that he has uh, to encourage us and lead us are wrapped up here in these texts. And yet, I don't know whether um, you're a bit like me, but when you first come to these books, they can seem a bit daunting, can't they? You know, you're, you're going through your Bible in the year, and then suddenly you get to one Chronicles. It's like, oh no, that's the ultimate Bible black hole. What do I do with this? Because <laughs> it all happened so long ago. And it's like, well, what has this got to do with me? All this stuff about kings and prophets and, and so on. It's hard for us to know what to do with it. Um, now, despite that daunting exterior, um, these Old Testament history books are not actually that hard. Um, and with God's help and with a few good tools in our pockets, um, we can really get access to the meat that's here. And there are so many riches and encouragements stored up in these books. So that's been, I guess, my experience with it. Um, looking back over my life, uh, reading the Bible and walking with God, some of the richest times, some of the sweetest times of just... Uh, I guess getting a handle on what God is like and what he, uh, how he would have me live um, and uh, how I can really appreciate all that he's done for me, uh, for me have come out of these uh, books of the Bible. So that's why I'm excited to be teaching it, to be sharing some of that stuff with you. So that's our goal. Um, we're going to try and open up just a small selection of these stories of the kings. Um, we want to give you a vision for opening them up in your own time. Um, we're going to do our best to draw out the lessons of each individual character that we tackle. Um, but more than that, we're also going to try and show you the tools that we're using so that you can use those tools yourselves. So this is going to be a bit like one of those classic Greg announcements for the Crossroads Worship CDs. Uh, you know, the thing where I'm going to show you how I'm getting what I'm getting out of these Bible passages. And I'm going to be actively disappointed if you don't rip those tools off. Um, I want you to use them in your own time. I want you to share them with anybody else if you think they're any good. And this sermon particularly, I'm going to be laying out quite a few tools for you. So it's going to feel maybe a bit unusual. And then you're going to see us going to work with them over the succeeding weeks. Uh, but hopefully you'll find there's plenty of encouragement in this text. The text we have today is one of my like, all-time favorites in the Bible. So I'm hoping that you're going to enjoy it too. So um, everybody cool with that? Because if you're not, this is the time to leave. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or to push me off and come and preach instead. Okay, don't take us. Right, good. So um, I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in. So um, just bow your heads and let's, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on what we're doing here. Jesus, we really thank you. When we watch you um, just in your life recorded in the Gospels, we see you handling the Bible. Um, and we would love to be able to handle the Bible like you do. We would love to be able to see in these Old Testament texts all the riches 
of the gospel just kind of taking shape and being prefigured. Um, We would love to be like those disciples on the road to Emmaus who uh, heard you opening up the scriptures and showing how it all points to you. And God, we just need your help to learn how to do that. We want to be able to read these texts for all they're worth. We want to be able to draw out from them the riches that you have stored here so that we can live in the light of them. Uh, And God, I pray that you would help us do that. But more than that, God, I pray that this text, this story that we're about to read, I pray that it would just captivate our hearts, that it would change us, that it would send us out into this week transformed uh, and ready to serve you more effectively. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Rod got us started last time with the David story, um, and that kind of introduces the whole idea of, of kingship. Uh, and how the kingdom of God, I know Rod went right back into Genesis to show where that comes from. Uh, Today we're just going to move on to David's son and successor, King Solomon. And uh, this brings us really into some of the most hallowed ground of the whole Bible story. And it gives us a great vantage point from which to look at kings in general, and to figure out how it is that we're supposed to read their stories. Um, So we're going to dive right in. There are obviously tons of different places in the Bible I could take you to read about Solomon because he's all over the place. Uh, There are 11 chapters of 1 Kings on uh, Solomon. You'll be glad to know we're not going to read all of that this morning. Um, But the place that I wanted to take you is 1 Kings chapter 10, um, which is the story of the arrival of the Queen of Sheba. If you haven't read the text, I'm sure you've at least heard the music that goes with that. Um, This... (laughs) um, there's this uh, queen, the Queen of Sheba. She um, came from North Africa, queen of a kingdom somewhere around modern-day Ethiopia. And she traveled with an enormous retinue of servants uh, all the way to Israel because she had heard about the wealth and wisdom of King Solomon and she wanted to see it with her own eyes. So we find that in 1 Kings chapter 10. We're just going to read through verses 1 to 9. Um, so will you stand with me and we'll um, get at that. 1 Kings chapter 10, starting at verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon in the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth. You have far exceeded the report that I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. All right, that's our text for the day. So take a seat and let's see what God has got for us here. So what do we make of this? I guess just kind of like on a prima facie reading, uh, this is pretty cool, isn't it? Just in terms of its history, this this thing was written 3,000 years ago. 
And it's great to be able to picture this black African queen traveling in full state with her soldiers and heralds and attendants up through Egypt, across the Sinai Peninsula to Israel, uh, because of what she heard about King Solomon's reputation. And if we scan over the preceding chapters, you might want to do this uh, in the week. Um, We can understand pretty quickly why it is that Solomon came to her attention. Because as we go through through 1 Kings chapters 1 to 10, we find that because of God's goodness to Israel uh, and because of his goodness to Solomon in particular, um, he had become pretty much the phenomenon of the whole region. Solomon was the guy on the cover of every magazine, if they had magazines back then. Um, God had made him incredibly wise. We read about that in chapter 3. Early in Solomon's reign, God gave him the opportunity to ask for whatever he wanted. And we're told that he asked for the ability to distinguish between right and wrong so that he would be able to govern his people wisely. And the result was just this incredible gift of wisdom and insight to rule. Uh, Right after that happens in chapter 3, we get a little illustration of what that looked like um, in this story uh, that I'm sure we all know of the two women who come uh, into his presence disputing over a child, uh, arguing over which one of them is really the mother. And um, I guess there were many, many instances that could have been given to us of Solomon's wisdom, but this is the one which is here to illustrate it. Uh, And it just gives us a pretty powerful portrait of what wisdom looked like in Solomon's hands and just how sharp he was, how incisive, uh, how God enabled him to just get right to the heart of the matter in front of him. So you might remember the story. Um, Solomon calls for a sword and he says he's going to cut the child in two and give one half to one woman and one to the other. It's pretty gross. Um, But what he's doing is he's then going to watch for the reaction to see what these two women are going to do. Because he knew that because of the real mother's love for her child, she would rather see that child given away than lose its life. And that's how Solomon found out who the real mother was. Kind of clever, isn't it? Clever, but good. This is the kind of thing that all kingdoms were looking for. I guess all kingdoms are still looking for. Kings, rulers who are able to separate truth from lies. Uh, The kind of king, the kind of ruler who cannot be fooled. That's kind of what we're looking for, isn't it? Anyway, Solomon's reputation spread. Uh, By the end of chapter 4, we find that comparisons are being made between him and all the greatest thinkers of his generation. Um, His fame spread to all the surrounding nations. Later on in our chapter, it says that the whole world came to seek an audience with Solomon and hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. But that wasn't the only thing that was drawing the Queen of Sheba to him, uh, because Solomon was also spectacularly rich. Um, He had fleets of ships trading on the Mediterranean, fleets of ships trading in the other direction on the Red Sea, out towards the Indian Ocean. He opened up trade routes to the north, to the east, to the south. Uh, We're told in the text they were given an amount of gold that he earned every year. If you put that into modern value, it's $1.3 billion. So it's quite something for an ancient kingdom. In chapter 10, later on, we're told that gold was so common in Israel in Solomon's day that silver was considered practically worthless. You wouldn't even make a loo roll holder out of it um, because gold was just the easiest thing to find. And not all, uh, all of this, I guess, was especially relevant to the Queen of Sheba, Um, Because northeastern Africa, the place that she comes from, um, is probably the place where a lot of this gold that Solomon's getting was being dug out of the ground. Uh, So we can imagine her curiosity, can't we, um, about this exotic king 
uh, from a kingdom a thousand miles away who just seems to be able to plow bottomless reserves of cash into her economy, um, who has this extraordinary reputation for wisdom. And you can imagine her just thinking, like, who is this guy? Is he for real? So in the end, she decides to go and find out for herself. And she travels uh, on a journey to meet him. And that's where we joined it in our story. But straight away, this text poses some problems for us, doesn't it? Where we actually try and think about what to do with it, how it applies to us. Because it's all very exciting and historical. But what's the point of connection to my life? Should I be seeing myself in this text somehow? Does it teach me that I can expect spectacular wisdom if I ask God the right way? Does it teach me that maybe I need to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to find the wisdom that I lack? Well, if we rush to see ourselves in the characters in the text like that, we can easily come up with wrong conclusions. And uh, Rod gave a great example of that last time out with David and the David and Goliath story. You know, it's easy for us to go up to that one and want to read ourselves into the characters in the story and think, hey, I want to be David. I want to be the hero. And so we ask, what are the giants in my life? What are the five smooth stones that I need to knock them down? But if we do that, we're failing to grasp the fact that the role that David is playing in the story is not a picture of our role at all. David is a representative. That's what it means to be a king. He goes into battle with Goliath as one man fighting for all. One man fighting in the place of his people. So David isn't there in the the story to show me me. I'm just one of the people, aren't I? No, he's there to show me what a representative looks like, and to point me forward to my representative, uh, to point me forward to Jesus. So if I want to find myself in the story, I need to look for someone in the story who's playing an equivalent role to me. Now that's such an important rule for understanding the Old Testament, I'm just going to say that again. If I want to find myself in the story, I need to look for someone in the story who's playing an equivalent role to me. And in the David and Goliath story, that's not too hard to find. That's the soldiers of Israel, isn't it? They're the people who are represented by King David. They're the people on whose behalf David fights. And they provide us with a wealth of lessons that we can learn. So when my representative, Jesus, goes into battle on my behalf on the cross, I see that I am much like David's soldiers, that I'm shaking with fear and powerless to do anything about the enemy that he's taking on on my behalf. But now that I see that my representative, unlikely though it might seem, has stepped up and won, now the soldiers of Israel show me what to do, don't they? Like them, my job is now to run into the battle in confidence that it's already been won. So all that provides us with some good general rules, I guess, about reading these Old Testament characters. We always need to ask ourselves what role they're playing in the story and whether that's a role that we ourselves play now or whether it's a role somebody else plays instead. And whenever we find a character who's playing a kind of representative role, we always need just to restrain our enthusiasm to see ourselves in that person. Uh, Because the chances are they tell us more about Jesus than they do about us. Does that make sense? Good. Now let's nuance this a little bit. Because does that mean that I now have nothing to learn from David at all? In his job, is his job in the Bible solely to point me to Jesus? Because if that's true, that seems to cut out a lot of well-known and well-loved interpretations of the Bible, doesn't it? 
You know, we're used to reading, as an example, Psalm 23, where David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And we're used to seeing ourselves in that text and saying, Yeah, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want either. So is that now out of bounds? Because David is a representative character, perhaps that one doesn't apply to me either. Well, let me explain to you on the screen why that's not true. So, okay. Here's our representative character, David, represented by the crown. Okay, you always just have to ask yourself, what are they doing in the actual text that you're reading? Now, quite often in these stories, you find these representative characters representing. They're actually doing their day job. And so here we go. This is David, and I'm going to represent him ruling over his people. So we need some people here. How are we doing? Oh, definitely need someone over here. Children in David's kingdom too. All right. (laughs) Okay. And um, in some of the texts, we can see him representing them, fighting for them, ruling over them, uh, leading them. And that's the kind of thing that we have in the David and Goliath story. And in that sort of situation, we should see David, the character there in the middle, as representative of Jesus. He points us to Jesus, our representative. But there are other stories where we see David relating not downwards to his people, but upwards to the big G. <laughs> Any guesses about who that might be? Let's just really... Yay. All right. <laughs> okay. Now, when he's doing that, when he's relating upwards to God, he shows me a lot about me because he's showing me what it's like to just be a regular believer on my knees before the throne. So you always ask yourself when you come to these Old Testament texts, you just say, look, am I dealing with a text that looks like below the line? Is it this representative character relating to his people, ruling them, leading them, fighting on their behalf? Then he's Jesus. But if it's above the line, if he's just on his knees before God, then he's just a kind of regular believer like me. And there's lots that I can learn. So Psalm 23 is clearly the top case, isn't it? So yes, we can learn lots from there. So I just wanted to kind of get that out there as a tool, because you're going to see as we go through these stories of the kings, us using that implicitly time and again. All right, so back to the plot. So now with some tools in our pockets, let's try this stuff out. Uh, how, do we do, uh, how do we deal with our text, with Solomon, the Queen of Sheba? Does uh, the Queen of Sheba in our story serve as a representative of uh, the people of Israel at all? No, uh, she's a Queen of Sheba, so she's not uh, leading the people of Israel. She's not pointing me forward to Jesus, Israel's king. Um, But it's true that she um, represents the people of her home country, but she is a queen. And that country is strikingly foreign, isn't it? It's Sheba in North Africa. So to apply uh, the lessons of her life today, maybe we could safely interpret the Queen of Sheba as a kind of typical seeker in some ways. But also maybe we should also see her as representative of the nations in some way. Now, how about Solomon? Does he serve as a representative of God's people? Yes, he does. He's the king of Israel. And is he fulfilling that representative role in our story? Yes, he is. He's sitting on the throne, welcoming the queen of Sheba on behalf of his people. So what have we got here? Is he me? Nope. He's a fully functioning model of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of his kingdom. And if we read it that way, then the whole thing just comes to life in terms of its application. So you see the queen of Sheba has some pretty remarkable things to say to Solomon, doesn't she, once we realize that he's serving as a kind of model or prototype of Jesus. 
She says that she was drawn to him because of the things that she heard, the reports that she picked up about him in her home country. Makes us think, are we spreading the news of Jesus out there to people so that they can uh, make that connection? But when she stood before him, she realized that not even half the truth had been told her. And she then just bursts into this incredible summons to praise, which just moves me so deeply. She says to Solomon, how happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. So do you see, if we can take this to Jesus, then these courtiers that she's talking to, these men and women with the privilege of living in Solomon's kingdom and continually standing before him and hearing his wisdom, they're a model of us. We are the people. We're the officials. The only difference is that in the kingdom in which we stand, one greater than Solomon is here. So do you see the application to us is this incredible summons to us to praise and appreciate our saviour. If the nations in the Queen of Sheba uh, came to Solomon and just gave his people this incredible kind of kick, this wake-up call to say, look, come on, show him the appreciation that he deserves. Don't you realize how lucky you are? Look who you've got sitting on the throne of your life. Well, then how much more should we hear the same wake-up call? And how much more does the king on the throne of our lives, on the throne of your life, deserve your praise and your appreciation See, it's true, Solomon's wisdom made Israel a delight to live in as far as any human kingdom can be. It was a fair society. It was governed wisely. The people knew that their lives were in safe hands. But how much more is that true of us? See, the kingdom of God that we're part of today, the kingdom that fulfills all of these Old Testament promises and pictures, it's so much better a place than Israel was in Solomon's day. See, Solomon was just a man. He made mistakes. In the end, he made some dreadful mistakes. But Jesus never has, and he never will. So we should be happy, and we should express that happiness and appreciation to our king. It's such a privilege to know him and serve him. There's never been, and there never will be, anyone like him. Now, that's something that we can really take away into our own time, isn't it? Um, Just think about spending some time in his presence this week. If you flip open your Bible on Monday morning, Just picture yourself maybe in that throne room, realizing that you're even more privileged than the people who were in Solomon's throne room. Think how great a king is sitting on the throne of your life. And then just worship him. Give him the appreciation that's due. And then maybe with your family or with your colleagues. You know, it's pretty cool, isn't it, to just think who it is who's really reigning and ruling over our lives. And he deserves our worship and we should be happy about it. Anyway, I hope that gives us a bit of an idea of the the way into these characters of the kings Um, and any other representative characters that we read in the Old Testament, whether they're prophets or priests or kings. uh, With a little practice, it gets really easy to see the direction in which they point. Um, And when we do that, then these texts that seem so difficult at the start just start to gush out all of their riches as the Holy Spirit just kind of gets to work with us, uh, opening up the the meaning that he laid up here in them uh, for our benefit. Now, obviously, not all the characters in the story are going to be quite as easy as the ones that we just dealt with. As we go through our series, we're going to find, um, even actually as we finish our message today with Solomon, we're going to find that we have bad representatives to deal with, as well as good ones. So we've got to ask, well, what do we do with those? 
But even in those cases, it's not actually that hard. You see, all the same principles apply when we get to a wicked king like Ahab, who I have the delight of preaching on in two weeks' time. That's going to be fun. Um, He's still a representative. He still stands in the role of the king of God's people. He's still pointing me to Jesus. It's just in his case, he points me to everything that Jesus isn't. So if we read about the way Ahab led his people to worship foreign gods, and we read him right, we don't see ourselves in that story. No, we see Jesus in it. And we say, praise God that I have a king who will never, ever do that. Every word that he says is reliable and faithful. He will never lead me off the rails in the way that Ahab did. We can say to Jesus, look, you're utterly dependable. I'm safe with you. I can trust every word that you say. And that's an amazing thing to be able to come to him with that comes right out of these Old Testament texts. And of course, most of the kings that we deal with have a bit of a blend of those two things going on at the same time. You know, even David, uh, there are parts of his life where you're going to look at that and say, well, thank God that Jesus isn't like that, that he doesn't have those weaknesses. So we always just have that kind of balancing act to do. But by and large, that principle of just asking, who am I in the text? And then having the courage to give Jesus uh, the credit to make him the hero, that's going to get us 80% of the way to getting a true and life-giving understanding of these Old Testament passages. Uh, So I hope that we'll find that encouraging as we put it into practice in our own time. But if we want to get under the surface of this particular text, and we want to read Solomon right, there's one more uh, tool that we need in the kit bag. You see, it's true that Solomon was a king and a representative, just like any other king in Israel's story. But Solomon is also a special king. Solomon was unique. And the reason is that he sits at a very particular spot in the overall uh, unfolding storyline of God's kingdom. Uh, The Bible, as I think I've kind of shared this many times with you before, I know Rod has done as well. The Bible is the story of how God intends to recreate Eden, isn't it? The Bible is the story of God redeeming his kingdom, buying back his special people to live in his special place so that they can experience the blessing of his presence with them and his rule over them and be a blessing to the world. And from the very beginning, God intended to bring that plan to completion through Jesus. Only Jesus has got kind of big enough shoulders to bear the weight of those expectations. But what God does in the history of Israel that we have recorded in our Old Testaments is that he foreshadows that ultimate fulfillment. Using human characters with all their faults, God creates a weak but very instructive picture of what his kingdom will look like when it comes. In fact, he does it twice. So um, I'll just put this down for a minute. For fun, I tell people that um, the story of the Bible is like chucking someone in the river. You know how that goes. I get hold of the feet, someone else gets hold of the arms, and we go, one, two, three, and we let them go, and that's where the real action happens, and they get wet, right? Okay. Well, the story of the Bible is like that, Um, because those uh, first two throws, although they're not the real thing, they're kind of practice swings, aren't they? But they're directional. They give you an idea of what's going to happen, but it doesn't actually really come to the crunch, and that's what happens in the story of the Bible. God gives us two directional glimpses of what God's kingdom is going to look like when it finally comes. But it's only when we reach Jesus that we actually see anyone thrown in the water. Let me show you. Okay, so here we go. Let's get the screen back up. I know that sounds completely weird and confusing, but you'll get it in a minute. All right. 
Okay, perfect. Sorry about this, just slight technology glitch. All right, okay. So, um, this whole story starts in the garden. Um, Call it the kingdom of God. The Bible does the same thing. Uh, And what we see is that God creates people, Adam and Eve, to live in his beautiful place, and he blesses them. And his blessing has two components to it. God's presence, his presence with them, living with them, sharing his life with them, and his rule over them. Uh, So God tells them the ground rules of how this kingdom is going to work. And what we find is that the fruit of that is blessing to the world. So the kingdom is not just something that's created in a vacuum for God's people just to enjoy for its own sake. But Adam and Eve are commissioned with all of these good things there in the orange box to go out and take that goodness, that life-giving truth out to the world and to reign and rule over it. So that's our model for what Eden looks like originally. That's the kingdom of God. But then sin comes into the story, doesn't it? And if we're reading our text of Genesis right, we see it systematically destroying every single one of those things. So we, God's, we see God's people, Adam and Eve, divided. We see God's place, they're exiled from it, they're cast out. We see Adam and Eve reject God's rule, and as a result, they forfeit God's presence. They can't stand in his presence anymore. And the result of that is that they become a curse to the world rather than a blessing. And you see that working its way out in the first few chapters of Genesis. But then in the story, something really remarkable happens. God shows up and he makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. That's probably one of the most important passages in the whole of your Bible. Definite candidate for underlining for anyone who's into that kind of thing. Um, (laughs) God makes Abraham a promise. And what we see him do is we see him uh, pledge to recreate all the original elements of the kingdom. So he says, uh, go from your father's country, Abraham, to the land that I will show you. Well, the land is God's place. Then he says, I'll make you into a great nation. That's God's promising to make uh, Abraham into a God's people again. Then he says, and I will bless you. That's everything that we've got there with those two little subheadings. A God promising to reestablish the blessing of his presence and rule. And then what does he say to Abraham? He says, the purpose is all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So you can see that what God's trying to do is go back to Eden to redeem and restore it. And that's the important final element of it. Because the point is, after Adam and Eve fall, you can't just walk back into this now. We have to be redeemed, brought back in order to enter the kingdom of God. So we'll just leave that on the screen as we go through this next piece. So you can see that it's all there. God promises Abraham that he'll restore all the original elements of the kingdom. And then as we go through our Bibles, which narrate the next several hundred years, we see God systematically fulfill every component of that promise. Beginning At the beginning of Exodus, uh, we read, After Joseph and his brothers and that whole generation who went down to Egypt died, the Israelites multiplied greatly and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, so the children of Abraham have become a great nation. So let's just check that one. Then Moses appears on the scene and the Israelites are rescued from Egypt. We have the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. So God doesn't just create a special people out of nothing. He buys them back from slavery 
So that is redemption. Check. Then we find God guiding his people in a pillar of cloud and fire, don't we? He leads them out into the desert, and then finally that pillar of cloud and fire comes to rest in the tabernacle. What's that all about? Well, that's the first part of the blessing that God promised, isn't it? That's God's presence. Check. Next, we come to Mount Sinai, and we get the Ten Commandments, and we can see what's going on now, can't we? That's the second part of the promise that God made to Abraham. That's God's rule. Check. So now as we come to the end of the first five books of the Bible, what's the only thing that's left outstanding before we get the result? God's place, right? Everything else that God has promised to Abraham has come true. God's people, redemption, the blessing of God's presence and rule. It's all there. So it shouldn't surprise us at all what happens next, should it? We get to the beginning of the book of Joshua and the Israelites cross the Jordan into the promised land and they divide it up and settle it. So what you've then got is the complete set God's people, God's place, God's blessing, all bought at the cost of redemption. And so as the whole thing ends, we get these words of Joshua at the end of that book, which also are a strong candidate for underlining in your Bibles. Joshua 21, verse 44 and 45. It says, The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. Now, we're hearing that right now. The Lord gave them rest. That word is not being used loosely, is it? Rest is the word that God used to describe Eden in Genesis 2. Now, look what they've got. It's Eden restored. And Joshua's summary is striking, isn't it? He says, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. And it's as if he's been listening along with us, isn't it? With his little chart, ticking off the boxes, thinking, oh, tick, 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 tick. Ah, God's place, tick. Now we're done. All the promises to Abraham have been fulfilled. Nothing has been left outstanding. And the fruit of this is what? What are we expecting? Blessing to the nations, right? So that's the reason why at this point in the story, we get the Rahab story. We get the Ruth story. What better illustration could we have of the kingdom functioning properly than to see the way that it draws into itself the weak and the compromised of all nations and provides them with a home close to God's heart? That's it. That's the first swing. That's our first vision of the kingdom of God. We might call that kingdom one. Um, The promises of God fulfilled under Joshua. But then as soon as it emerges, it collapses. You know the story. Even though it took generations to bring this intricately woven picture of the kingdom of God to fruition, we see it destroyed in an instant. After Joshua died in Joshua chapter 2, it says this, Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil and they served the Baals. And piece by piece, we see every ingredient of this perfect restored Eden destroyed. The armies and the gods of Israel's, Israel's Canaanite neighbors come creeping over the borders and we see God's place eroded. Instead of standing distinct from the world and being blessing to the world, the Israelites become just like the world. They end up cursing it just as much as it curses them. They reject God's rule. And what happens to God's presence? Anyone remember the Sunday school story there? God's presence is symbolized by the ark. It's captured by the Philistines and carried out of Israel. Isn't that a tragedy in the light of this diagram? God's presence removed, withdrawn. And by the end of the story, at the end of the book of Judges, we find them fighting a civil war. 
brother against brother, God's people internally divided, every single piece of that destroyed. And so God teaches us in the history of Israel that this is just a picture of the kingdom. This isn't what God really promised to Abraham for real, is it? You know, just for it just to live for a few years and then just vaporize. That doesn't really fulfill the promises to Abraham. It's a practice. It's not the real throw. It's a swing, but it's not really anybody getting wet. It's the idea, it's an idea of what the kingdom of God will look like painted on the canvas of human history with men and women playing all the parts. But the crash teaches us that that's all it is. Humans cannot deliver or sustain the fulfillment of God's promises. We cannot make heaven on earth. And don't believe anyone who tells you that we can. God's created this whole intricate dance through the Old Testament to teach that one point. If our hope is for this world only, we are to be pitied more than all men. But then we come to the second swing. We enter the era of the kings, which is where all our sermons are for the next few weeks. And we see God's heart is still to uh, show what it looks like to fulfill these promises. And so we get King Saul stepping onto the stage. He's the first king. And the very first thing that he does is pull God's people back together. They're divided. They're more engaged in tearing each other apart than fighting their enemies. But God's spirit enters Saul in 1 Samuel 11. And we're told that he summons the people out to fight. And the terror of the Lord falls on them. And they come out together as one. God's people. Check. Then David steps onto the stage. And the first thing that happens is what? He fights and wins and delivers them from slavery in single combat with Goliath. So that's the redemption piece of the puzzle. Check. Ultimately, David comes to power in Israel. We read about all of his military victories, and sometimes we wonder why. Well, because by winning the submission of all his neighbors, the Philistines, the Arameans, the Ammonites, he makes the borders of Israel secure again. That's God's place. Check. And then in the middle of it all, we see God's rule reestablished. See, David was a man after God's heart, wasn't he? He had no interest in putting human ideas about what was right and wrong and how to govern a country over God's ideas. So just listen to him in Psalm 19. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Imagine being led by a king who really believes that. That's God's rule. Check. So that leaves just one piece on the table again, right? God's presence. And maybe now we can see why David was so anxious to build a temple. But that honor was reserved for Solomon. Because under his reign, we see the second shining moment of completion in the whole Old Testament story. The whole thing comes together for the first time under Joshua. Joshua, which means savior. And then it collapsed. But now the whole thing comes together again under Solomon, which means Prince of Peace. And when we start to look at the text, we see it just dripping with references to this this moment of completion, uh, just like it was under Joshua. So you might want to just write some of these references down, but not look at them now. David gives a charge to Solomon before he dies in 1 Kings chapter 2. And he says to Solomon, be strong that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. That's exactly what God said to Joshua at the beginning of uh, the book of Joshua when he's going to lead the people into complete kingdom one. 
Then in 1 Kings chapter 4, we're told that under Solomon, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand or the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. As numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's a word-for-word quote from the promise of the kingdom that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 22. Check. God's people. And then from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. That's a word-for-word quote from the promise of the kingdom that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15. God's place. Check. And they ate and drank and were happy. That's rest. That's God's blessing. Check. So that's the second swing. This is kingdom two under Solomon. And it all comes to a head in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, where we hear Solomon's reaction to all of this. At the opening of the temple, God's presence falls and fills the Holy of Holies. And Solomon says this, Praise be to the Lord, who's given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises that he gave through his servant Moses. That's a word-for-word quote from the passage that we had earlier with Joshua. All the good promises that God gave through his servant Moses were fulfilled. People, place, blessing, all restored. And that, of course, helps us make sense of our text. Because what was the purpose of God's kingdom when it came? To be a blessing to the world. God's kingdom exists to be a blessing to the nations. And that's exactly what we have with the Queen of Sheba. This wasn't just some random incident in history. God brought the Queen of Sheba into the story right at the point when he does, just at this fulfillment of the second kind of vision of the kingdom, Uh, just like he brought Ruth and Rahab into the story of Kingdom One. God is using the history of Israel to paint a picture of what his kingdom will ultimately be like. He's teaching us that when the kingdom finally comes for real, this is how it's going to look that people from every nation will be drawn towards it and towards the king who sits on its throne because nothing and no one will be able to match his wisdom. And that's exactly how it worked out, isn't it? We know that because we've just read the book of Acts. We've seen kingdom three. We're living it. When Jesus came, blessing exploded outwards to the nations and it's still exploding in the witness of his people. It reached us and through us, God intends for it to reach our neighbours. Jesus is the king of kings. Every knee will bow before him. This is what it's supposed to be like. We're supposed to be, uh, I guess, the mediators of bringing uh, the nations to him, just like the Queen of Sheba came before Solomon. But above all else, this survey of where Solomon fits into the overall story of the Old Testament just shows us that God keeps his promises, doesn't it? It's so important for us to know that. I just think this is mind-bending when you look at it, the, the, the hundreds of years that are involved. And yet God is faithful to every single thing that he said to Abraham. He doesn't let it drop one bit. And that's important because as Christians, we're resting the weight of our lives on those promises to Abraham too. We're living in the hope that one day God will bring us to his special place and that we will live forever there, enjoying his presence and his rule. That's heaven. And maybe that seems a bit crazy sometimes to be trusting that. Maybe it all seems a bit implausible and a bit unlikely. But if we think that, we just need to read a text like this one. Because even though the promises that God made to Abraham predate Solomon by maybe even a thousand years, God remembered every single one of them. Not one of them was dropped. It seemed amazingly unlikely when the promises were made. 
You know, even the very first one that God's going to make Abraham into a people where his wife is childless and so is his daughter-in-law and so is her daughter-in-law. And yet God fulfilled every single one of them. That's how it worked out in history. And that's how it will work out because God has not changed. We can trust every word that he says. He's serious about fulfilling his promises. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Solomon's kingdom points us forward to Jesus, but it's just a swing. It's not the real throw. It was an idea of what the kingdom of God would look like, painted on the canvas of human history with men and women playing all the parts. But like Joshua's kingdom, it crashed. And the crash teaches us that something more was needed. Humans cannot deliver or sustain the fulfillment of God's promises. We cannot make heaven on earth. And don't believe anyone who tells you that they can. Not even the wisest humans can do that. In fact, when we look carefully, we see ominous signs all the way through Solomon's story. Uh, Right at the beginning, his father David tells him not to offer sacrifices at the high places, the old Canaanite shrines that were left from when they first entered the land. Well, where was Solomon when he asked for wisdom? Making a sacrifice at a Canaanite shrine. And even when he asks for wisdom, it's a bit eerie to hear the actual words that he chooses. He says to God, give your servant a discerning heart to govern govern your people and to distinguish between good and evil. Well, in the Hebrew, that's pretty much a word-for-word quote from the word Satan uses to tempt Adam and Eve, that they will be like God, distinguishing between good and evil. Wisdom was certainly a good thing to ask for, but you can't help preferring David's answer to the question, what's the one thing you would want from the Lord? David prayed that he might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life and gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses provides a list of watchouts for future kings. He says that they mustn't accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Well, in Hebrew weights and measures, Solomon's annual income of gold comes up to 666 talents. Check. Moses said that the king must not acquire great numbers of horses or send his people back to Egypt to get more of them. 1 Kings 10 says that Solomon had 12,000 horses and each and every one of them came from Egypt. Check. Moses said that the king should not take many wives, but 1 Kings 11 tells us Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Check. The man became a wreck. He turned himself into a hedonistic experiment in wandering away from God, and his people were wrecked with him. His wisdom was no defense. There's no gift that God will give us in this life that voids our responsibility to pursue him with all our hearts. Great learning or no learning makes no difference. If we're, just, if we're not deciding every day to pursue him with everything that we've got, we're headed for the rocks. And if that's where the story ended, if that's what it was all about, just an Old Testament history story, it would be pretty discouraging, wouldn't it? But because of all that we've done this morning, I hope we realize now that's not why it's there. Now we know how to read the kings, we know that's not where it ends. God wasn't blindsided by the destruction of kingdom two any more than he was blindsided by the destruction of kingdom one. He had always planned it that way. He wrote these pictures of the kingdom into the human story of Israel because he wanted us to see that no man, however godly, however wise, can deliver the restoration of Eden. The two practice swings leave us yearning, waiting, hoping against hope that one day something different, someone different will come and fulfill the ancient promises that God made to Abraham. 
that God himself would intervene and redeem the kingdom, that he would step into the story and buy back his people to live in his special place so that they could experience the blessing of his presence with them and his rule over them and be a blessing to the world forever. And ladies and gentlemen, that is Jesus. When Israel finally entered Canaan, after all their wandering, Joshua said, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. Solomon said the same thing to his generation. But now listen to what Paul says to us. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. Truly, one greater than Solomon is right here. And if Solomon deserved the praise of his people, as the, as the, um, uh, the Queen of Sheba summoned his people and his officials to give it, how much more does Jesus deserve our praise? Let's pray. Jesus, we are just awed by the amazing way in which you have written your story on the canvas of human history. There is no way that that could be true unless you are exactly who you claim to be. God, that's inaccessible to us. We can't write stories on history. It just happens to us. But God, you work through it to say what you want to say, and you have made it so clear that you are lifting up a savior, a redeemer, someone who is more than a mere man, someone who is God himself, who will fulfill all of these amazing, good, blessed promises that you made to Abraham, that he will tear the curtain, open the way back into Eden. And God, we thank you so much that we have lived to see him, that we see Jesus lifted up, sacrificing himself in our place to break through into that kingdom that will never spoil or fade. So Jesus, give us courage and confidence to walk with you, to put our hand in yours. And as we do that, help us regularly every day just to look up at the one whose hand we're holding and say, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe this man is God. There is no one like him. How happy we must be to serve, to hear his wisdom, to live in his presence. Amen.